The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. We have been in a sermon series that we've called The True Story of the Whole World, where we've been trying to tell the one true story that encompasses all people at all times throughout all of history. The story is the story of the Bible. And more specifically, it is the story of the God of the Bible, who is the one true God who rules and reigns over all things. We've talked about God creating. That's how we opened our series in week one. We talked about how man falls. That's what we talked about in our second week. And then we talked about over the last few weeks how God pursues a people for himself in the Old Testament with Israel. The kind of the entire longing of the Old Testament is for everything to be made right. Longing for a person to come and fix all things. And that person is called the Messiah or the Christ. And then the last two weeks, we've turned our attention to the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, tell the good news of the fact that the Messiah has come. That's what Trevor shared with us two weeks ago. That Jesus is God incarnate, the one we celebrate in this season, this Advent season. We long for him. We wait for him. He has come. Jesus Christ is the yes to all of God's promises, but that's not yet fully realized. Jesus lived a perfect life, was crucified and buried, and was raised again, ascending to the right hand of the Father. And then Zach made clear for us last week that Jesus had to go because the Spirit needed to come. The Spirit signaled a change in the era. We live in this already not yet world. There's a, the graphic that we've used over the last couple of weeks that the kingdom has been ushered in already, but it's not yet fully re- realized. Jesus has paid for our uh, individual salvation. The Spirit has come and indwells us, leading believers to faith and repentance. And now we're waiting for the end to come. Christ is the yes to all of God's promises, but those promises just aren't fully realized in their completeness. So now the question becomes, now what? The Messiah has come. The Messiah has sent his spirit. What do we do now? Do we just kind of sit around? Do we just wait for the renewal of all things? Renewal is going to be our final chapter, chapter 12 next week. Are we just waiting for all things to be made right? Do we just kind of go out individually, proclaim the gospel, tell people about Jesus, try to get people to heaven with us? We know that God is still pursuing a people for himself. But who are these people? God is calling a people. And so our chapter 11 for this morning is the church. God is calling a people to himself, namely the church. I want to answer a number of questions. We're going to answer three questions related to the church. The first question is probably the most foundational. And the question is, what is the church? So question one, what is the church? I'm assuming that you have heard the word church before. All right, I hope that's a safe assumption to make. You are at a place called Ridgewood Church. If you didn't know that, welcome. We are so glad to have you here with us. 
It's in our name that we are called a church. But all of us bring a load of ideas and assumptions and perspectives when it comes to the concept of the church. You might think of the church as a social club. You might think of the church as a building. You might think of the church as a group of hypocrites. You might think of the church as a place where I've been hurt personally. I've experienced pain in that place. You might think of it as a boring place that we always used to go as a child. I don't know why we went there. It was really boring. It was kind of stuffy. But some reason we showed up week after week after week. Well, the word translated as church in the New Testament is ecclesia. Ecclesia is used in the New Testament 114 times. So it is used a lot in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. Almost 80% of the time that it is used, it refers to a local church, just like we are here, a local church. Now this morning, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to take your copy of the scriptures and turn there, it'll be after the four gospels, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Now Ephesians is a book that's written generally to believers in Ephesus. Now the word church is used nine times in the book of Ephesians, but every time it is used, it refers to the universal church. The universal church being kind of Christians, all times, and all places. So the majority of the time the New Testament uses the word church, it's referring to a kind of a specific church, a specific group of people. Like you might say, Ridgewood Church, this group of people. But Ephesians, when it refers to the church, it is referring to kind of the universal church. It's talking, uh, it helps us get at what is the nature of the church. So that's how we're going to answer what is the church. We're going to look in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see four images for the church. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look in four different chapters in Ephesians, and we're going to see four different images for what is the church. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. Really, the, the crux of the passage I'm reading here is like verse 19 and 20. But this is all one sentence by Paul, so it felt like we needed to go back and start at the beginning of the sentence and get our kind of on-ramp up to what we're really trying to look at. Verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, so he's writing generally to these believers in Ephesus. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So verse 15, Paul says that that foundational for these saints is their faith in the Lord and their love for the saints. Verse 17, Paul's praying for the work of the Spirit to help the saints 
know God. And then verse 19 and 20, the Father's great might raised Christ from the dead, and now Christ sits with the Father at his right hand. And then verse 21, let's put up uh, the already not yet graphic again, Jonathan. Verse 21, Jesus, Paul says Jesus is above and rules over all things, both in this age, the already, but also in the age to come, the not yet. And then verse 22 and 23, all things have been put under Christ's rule. The Father has given the Son to be head over all things for the church. And then he uses this language, image Number one, it'll be on the screen. The church is the body of Christ. So verse 22 and 23, Christ is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. Christ dwells fully in the church through the spirit. Jesus has sovereign authority over all things and especially cares and loves the church. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 makes clear that we are members of his body. Those who make up the church body are members in Christ. So image number one, the church is the body of Christ. Image number two, we're going to work our way through Ephesians chapter two. We're going to look at verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Paul tells us here that if we are in Christ, if God has saved us, we are citizens and members of the household of God. And all this is built on the foundation that the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament built. And Paul says Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the household of God. And we are joined together. We are united as brothers and sisters because of Christ. And then we ultimately, in this unity, we grow into a holy temple where God dwells. So image number two for the church, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, Paul says, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are built by the Spirit, ultimately for the Spirit, For the Spirit to dwell here, to dwell in Ridgewood Church. So the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's go on and read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, and we'll find our our third image in there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So verse 9, the mystery hidden for ages has now been manifested in Christ. What is this mystery? The mystery is that God is pursuing a people for himself, and that always was assumed to be Israel, to be the Jews. But now Paul is making clear that God is pursuing a people for himself. It doesn't just include the Jews, it includes the Gentiles as well. It includes the nations. It ultimately includes us. We are so many thousands of miles from where all of this is taking place. The nations are included in the people of God. Verse 10, what is the church supposed to do? The church exists to make God known, to make Jesus known, to reveal and to show the mighty wisdom of God. And then verses 11 and 12, God purposed this from eternity past and gives us boldness and access. Thinking about what Zach shared last week, that we're given access and we're given a mission. Paul uses the same language here. We are given access through the Spirit, and we are given boldness in Christ. Our faith in Him motivates us to go and proclaim Christ. So image number three, the church is the people of God, which includes both Jew and Gentile. Image three, the church is the people of God, which includes both Jew and Gentile. It's interesting thinking about being a people, being just any group that exists. There's something innate that people long to be, individuals long to be part of a group. Even if our culture is hyper-individualistic, we like to be around other people. One of the great detriments maybe of of the COVID era was being in isolation, being lonely, not being a part of a people. I think about something like uh, the CrossFit kind of fad, however long that's gone on. What has it been? 10, 15, 20 years? Who knows? However long it's been. But this idea that you know how, like, I'm, you know how we're going to make money? Is we're going to charge $200 or however much it costs for people to go to this abandoned warehouse in the middle of nowhere and use this old gym equipment and these, you know, ropes and whatever else. And they're going to work out and they're going to be part of this tight-knit community. We're going to be, we're a people. We're kind of a gathering. These, these are my people. We're going to work out together. We're going to do this. We're going to hold one another accountable. It's such an interesting idea that it's built on. People long for community. They long to be a part of a people. You long for it. I long for it. We're a part of gyms. We're a part of sports. We want to be a part of book clubs. I was listening to a, a football podcast, real football, uh, football, you know, soccer, real, po- real football, this past week. And it, there's this, this group, it was kind of a fan, uh, it was a podcast where they have a, a Patreon support group, which apparently means you can give like $5 a month, and you can kind of be on the inside. You get to be a part of like their Slack group text thread, you get extra special podcasts. And these two podcasters, I'm assuming they're not believers, I have no idea, they were talking about how one of their, their people in this group that's you know, paying to be a part of this group is, was having a hard time. But the thing they love about this text thread is that we're just here for each other. We're encouraging one another. We help each other in the hard times when our dogs are sick, when we're going through troubles. We're here for one another. 
And it's just this random made-up group of these people that support this football team. They live all across the world. They're just in this Slack text thread together. They watch the same YouTube videos about their football team. But somehow we're, we're united. We're a part of a people. We're together. We all long to be a part of a people. And Paul makes clear here that we are a part of a people. We are united as Jew and as Gentile. There's nothing like the church being God's special people. Let's go on. Let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, we get that same language again, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And I'll have it on the screen, but verse 32, talking about a husband and a wife. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the savior of the church. The church submits and follows Christ. Image number four, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ with Jesus as the head. Christ loves his church. He literally gave his life for the church. Christ cleanses the church. He presents the church as holy and without blemish because of his work on the cross. I'm going to read a quote. It'll be on the screen uh, by a man named John Hammond. He's a a professor uh, at, at Southeastern Seminary. In reference to kind of a few passages from Ephesians talking about the universal church. So again, remembering Ephesians, when it uses the word church, is talking about the universal church. But how do we then think about that for us? He says, these passages may well refer to the universal church. But how is Christ building of the church seen in the world today? Where do we see Christ loving his church? Where is God being glorified today? The answer in each case is in local churches. Despite all their obvious flaws, God loves real local churches, not some invisible ideal. That's us. We have obvious flaws. We have obvious shortcomings. If you get to know us long enough, you see it. It's clear. But God loves real local churches. So we've tried to answer what is the church. There is a ton more that we can say, but hopefully we've established a foundation with the root of these four images. I want to turn to think a little bit more practical, and our second question is, who is the church? Who is the church? Just a simple answer, the church members. Who is the church? It's the church members. Maybe slightly more specific questions would be something like, should the church have membership? Should we have be members? Who are the members of the church? Who gets to decide who becomes members? 
Now, one thing I'll talk about in Discovering Ridgewood, that's our class where we, do, where we talk about membership in our church. You're not going to find in the scriptures, thou shalt be a member of a local church. That commandment is not there. It's not a verse in scripture. But there is a ton of evidence for membership being extraordinarily helpful and even necessary. In Discovering Ridgewood, I'll talk about a few different things. They'll they'll be on the screen. The first one is that membership is biblically modeled. Membership is biblically modeled. Think about a passage like Acts 6. The first deacons are put in place because certain widows are not being cared for. And there's some clear understanding that these are the widows we should have been caring for. I don't think they were thinking all widows in Jerusalem. We should care for every single widow that's out there. There's, these widows are a part of us and we're not caring for them. Matthew 18, the passage on church discipline. They are to be, eventually a person is to be removed from the church. 1 Corinthians 5, the same exact picture. There's some, que- there's some question the language of membership. Should we use that language? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 31, talks about being members of the body. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, exact same language. We are members of the body of Christ. Being a member of a church is not like being a member of Sam's Club or being a member of the Rotary Club or being a member of whatever club that you are part of. In the New Testament, there's about 60 commands that include the the language of one another, that we are to forgive one another, that we are to love one another, that we are to care for one another. And it's teaching Christians how they are to relate to one another. And in this teaching, there's an assumed proximity to other Christians. If I need to learn how to forgive somebody, if you need to learn how to forgive me, there's an assumed proximity. We need to be in relationship with one another. Paul writes his letters to churches. If if you read through his letters, he doesn't write them to leadership. He doesn't write them to pastors. Sometimes he'll write them to an individual, kind of maybe that's overseeing a certain kind of ministry or mission. But he writes to churches, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica. There's some notion of this is the church. I'm writing to these people. So membership is biblically modeled. The second one, membership is practically helpful. Hebrews 10 tells us that we are not to to neglect the gathering of the saints. So the question is, who am I to gather with? Am I to gather with all Christians in all of Greer, you know, in all of Greenville County, in all of Spartanburg County? There's some connotation of these are the people that I have committed to gathering with. I'm not to neglect the gathering of the saints. Hebrews 13, verse 17, says that the elders are going to give an account for the people that they are leading. So it is very helpful for the five pastors of Ridgewood Church to know that I am accountable for the 200 members of Ridgewood Church. And yes, maybe I'm accountable for my neighbors and I'm accountable for other Christians and I want to encourage them and love them and be united to them as we are as part of the universal church. But I'm especially accountable to those who are members of Ridgewood Church. The author of Hebrews makes that clear in Hebrews 13, verse 17. So membership is practically helpful. Third, membership should consist of regenerate believers. Who is the church? Well, it's the church members, and the church members should consist, should be regenerate believers. 
These church members should believe in Christ, belong to God, be filled with the Spirit, be united with each other by the Spirit. Again, thinking about Paul, Paul Paul writes to local churches made up of saints. I would just encourage you, if you're thinking about the church, just go read the first like one or two verses of all of Paul's letters, and you'll just see the language used of the saints in this place, the people who are being sanctified in this area. Paul writes his letters to specific people, to specific churches made up of believers. If the universal church is composed of believers, the goal of local churches should be to get as close as possible to that standard as well. The church, churches started in Acts. We just came out of a series in Acts. We see churches started over and over and again. When do those churches start? When people become believers and they start to gather together to worship God, to be held accountable, to encourage one another in their walks. Members were removed when they seemed not to believe in Jesus. So, who is the church, the church members? And then our final question, what does the church do? So we tried to answer, what is the church? Gave us four images. Who is the church? It's the church members, the church membership. And then what does the church do? We've kind of been theoretical up to this point, but what are we to actually do week in and week out? In many ways, the church is to know and walk closely with God. Ephesians 3 verse 10 that we read just a few minutes ago tells us that the church is to make the wisdom of God known to the world. I love the language, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church makes God known The church makes Jesus known. On the screen, I'll have a couple of kind of summary ways to think about this. The church is to be disciples, and the church is to make disciples. Might be a a, a simple way of thinking about it. There's kind of a being, we are to be disciples, and we are to make disciples. All right, I want to think about the churches to be disciples. What, it, what does it mean to, to be disciples, to be part of the church? There, there's this uh, language out there from different scholars and writers and pastors, theologians, about how the church gathers for worship and the church scatters in the world. So the church gathered and the church scattered. Now, the focus of these two may be similar. The focus is to make much of Christ, to make God's wisdom known, to glorify the Lord Jesus. But the activities might be slightly different or done in a slightly different way. The church exercises its full authority given by Jesus in Matthew 16 when it gathers. Much of what we are doing here this morning. There's something beautiful that happens each and every week. We're not just here to, you know, hopefully learn a little bit more information, to spend a little bit of time smiling, high-fiving each other. There is something uniquely spiritual about the gathering of the saints, the gathering of men and women who say, I am not enough. I am a sinner. I need to be refreshed by the gospel. I want to pray with other brothers and sisters. I want, I need to hear from God's word. I want to sing out the glory and the majesty of our God. There's something beautiful as we gather under the lordship of Jesus to worship him and to remind each other, not just me individually, of the gospel week after week after week. 
Think about the church gathered, Ephesians 4.11, how the leaders of the church are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is a great opportunity for the leaders of the church to unpack his word, to organize the service in a certain way, to teach and equip you to then go out and do the work of the ministry. In many ways, I'm not even doing the work of the ministry here. It's us proclaiming Christ, teaching about Christ, growing our love for Christ, so that then when the church scatters, we go out and we do ministry. So the church gathered and the church scatters. We go out individually here. That's why, you know, always at the end of the service, we talk about church, you were sent. Church, go scatter. Go make much of Christ wherever you go. But these activities do look different. It's all still centered on Christ. It's all still centered on his word. It's all still centered on in in prayer. We hope you spend time in each of those things. But as we scatter, that's the time where we get to go out and we get to care for coworkers. We get to engage in ministry to the poor, to the widow. We get to have Bible studies. We get to have small groups. We get to share meals together. We get to witness to our neighbors. We get to help each other in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work. We get to engage in civic and political action in our community. So the church gathers and the church scatters. Come two ideas to think about how we exist in being disciples. The second kind of part of uh, the church, what the church is to do, the church is to make disciples. The church is to make disciples. The aim is to make disciples both when we gather and when we scatter. The church is to make Jesus known. It's to bear witness to the wisdom of God. There's kind of an, an implicit and an explicit distinction that I w- would like to, to make here. Thinking about mission dimension and mission intention. Elisa was joking with me before that I probably needed you to start writing notes, you know, even before the sermon started because I had so much on the slides. But we'll spend just a minute, minute here that you can jot these things down if you, if you want to. Thinking about mission dimension versus mission intention. So everything the church does has a mission dimension or a missionary dimension. As we care for marriages, as we care for widows, as we care for the poor, as we participate in groups, as we work, as we worship, as we engage politically, as we use technology, as we participate in education and sports teams and art, as we go to concerts, as we go through our daily lives, as we equip parents, as we do our members' meetings. There's everything that the church does, that people that make up the church do. All of it has a missionary or a mission dimension. The whole life of our church is to bear witness to Christ, ultimately to the lordship of Christ. We want to make much of who Jesus is. So there's a mission dimension of everything our church does, we hope, makes much of Jesus. That's why our vision is to make Jesus known. Everything we do, every little decision that we make, we want to help make Jesus known. But a key focus for us as a church where we want to invest a ton of time are in activities with mission intention. They're heavily intentional to make Jesus known. So not just kind of implicitly glorifying Jesus, helping us know more of Jesus and magnify him, but directly and explicitly proclaim Christ. Intentional activities that invite people to follow Jesus. 
These things might include evangelism, meals with coworkers who are far from the Lord, going on walks to meet our neighbors, having block parties for the sake of building relationships, church planting, Bible translation, sending missionaries, good news club, good neighbor team. This work is essential to the essence of the church. Luke 24, uh, it's verses 45 through 49, some of Jesus' kind of final words to, to his followers. He talks about how you are to be witnesses for me. You're to go witness to everything you've seen. And that is what we want to do. We want to have mission intention with tons of things that we do to make much of Jesus. So what does the church do? The church is to be disciples and the church is to make disciples. As we kind of land the plane, I want to give us applications for, for three different groups. Three different groups. The first one's going to be for believers in the church. The second one's going to be for believers not in the church, which is kind of an oxymoron statement. And then the final one is for those who do not follow Jesus. So first, for believers in the church, two exhortations for, for you. One is to love each other. If you are a member of this church, if you are a member of another church, an exhortation that Christ gives us is to love each other. John 13, verses 34 and 35 makes clear that, we, that the world is going to know that we are disciples of Jesus by the way we love one another. And this isn't to be just kind of a feel-good Christmas, Hallmark, rom-com, love. That, that's not what this is. It's an intentional commitment to laying down our lives for the sake of the good of our brothers and sisters. Not a muddy form of tolerance and acceptance, but a genuine commitment to put others before ourselves. To recognize that we are part of a group. We are part of a people. We are part of something corporate. Zach last week was talking about um, the fruits of the Spirit and uh, the passions of the flesh in Galatians 5. And so right after the sermon, I just went and looked at that passage. And all of the yous, it talks about you are to put on the fruit of the Spirit. You are to put off the passions of the flesh. The you is not singular. A part of our issue in English is Y-O-U. You is both singular and plural. But in Galatians 5, all of it is plural. And so it's saying, you, all of you are to put on the fruit of the Spirit. All of you together are to put off the passions of the flesh. We are to love one another. We are to help push each other towards Christ and to put off those things which are evil. So love, the, love each other. And second, prioritize the church. Prioritize the church. I'm going to have two pictures on the screen. The, the first one is going to be this man that, that's juggling all of these different facets of life. Are we going to just add church to all the other things we're juggling? Work, play, our calendars, our finances. We all have so many different things that we're responsible for. School, whatever you're doing, you have a ton of things. We think about how we're juggling all of the different things that are in our lives. In many ways, it's even like a, a badge of honor in our time to be like, I am just so busy. I am juggling so many things. We, have, we all have a lot of things. And it's okay to be busy. We all want to have good things to do. We don't want to sit around and be apathetic doing nothing. We want to work. We want to create. We want to play. We want to be together. But are we going to add church to all the things that we're juggling? Man, I should have brought, 
I should have brought balls up here and juggled. That would have been a great illustration. I'll do that for you guys later, I promise. Um, Or are we going to center our life and prioritize the church? So the next one is where the the church, the, the community of God is at the center, almost like a wheel. The church is at the center and we have spokes going off to all the different things we're responsible for, all the different things we care for. But nothing is more important than your relationship with the Lord Jesus. And your relationship with the Lord Jesus is worked out in the context of community, is worked out in the context of the church. When we gather with the church, Christ feeds us. He feeds his flock through his word. So for believers in the church, we want to love each other and we want to prioritize the church. The next group, for believers not in the church. So if you would consider yourself to be a believer, if you would consider yourself, I love Jesus, I promise you, I definitely do. But if you are not in the church, the first thing I would encourage you with is salvation and local church membership normally belong together. To be born again means we are born into a family. We are part of the universal church. But the universal church is played out in local churches. 15th century reformer Han Hus, I think that's how you said it, I don't know. You guys probably know better than me. should have asked uh, Joshua, our expert of the 15th and 16th century reformation. But he said, every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ, the Lord, the bridegroom of that church, and also the church herself, his bride. John Calvin talks about how the church is not optional. Salvation and the church are inseparable. So I'm not saying you have to be a member of a church you know, every second of the rest of your life. There's times to assess and visit and determine, is this the right church for me? Is this where the Lord's calling me? We've got to maybe try a few churches. Tons of caveats to that. But normally, that's why I use the language normally, salvation and local church membership belong together. Second, I would just encourage you, commit to a church body. does not need to be here, but commit somewhere. You need it. Your soul needs it. The church needs you. You are depriving the church if you do not join it. If, you don't be, if you're not a part of it, encouraging the church, holding one another accountable. Some of us have been reading a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The Christian life ultimately becomes not about you. Your walk with the Lord is not about you. It becomes all about Christ and all about other people. The church will get something wrong. You will get hurt. You will have to practice forgiveness. Your personal desires will not be met. I promise you. And I'm sorry for that. But sin is still a part of this. Someone will fail you. But that is life as a family. Just because it's hard, just because we have to practice forgiveness, does not mean we don't buy in 100% and give our all. Just like we do in marriage, just like we do with brothers and sisters, with parents, with kids. We give our all, we forgive, and we invest. So salvation and local church membership normally belong together. And second, commit to a church body. 
And for those who do not follow Jesus, my encouragement to you would be to repent and believe. What we are getting to do here this morning is is amazing. And you cannot know how amazing it is until you see the beauty of Christ, what he has done for you. A person who is sinful and broken to your very core. But the God who created you has made a way for you, has offered redemption, has sent his very son, has sent his very spirit to come and to work and to move and to shape your heart, to submit to the Lord Jesus. Repent from your sin. Repent from the ways you pursue the gods of this world, the idols of this world, and believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, that he is majestic, mighty, he is the creator, he is the one we are created to be in relationship with. Repent and believe and take Christ. In just a moment, we're going to take communion all together. This is an extraordinary opportunity to see the gospel displayed. If you are not a believer, I would encourage you to to pass on the supper and to take Christ, to behold him, to see the beauty of him, his sacrifice for you. For those who are partaking, we're going to do like we did last week. We're going to have four stations set up. There'll be two stations set up kind of in the middle of the room. We're going to all go towards the walls, make a line on our way down. You'll grab the elements and then make your way back up to the middle to your seats. I'm going to pray, and then I'll read a short liturgy, and then we'll take the supper together. Once you grab the elements, let's hold on to them, and we'll take them all at the same time. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the gift of the church. Thank you for the gift of being able to be a part of a church body with all its flaws, with all of its shortcomings, with all of its struggles, with all the ways we fall short. Lord, it is beautiful. Ephesians 5, Jesus, you are washing the church. You are cleansing the church. You are beautifying the church with your word and with the spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help our church to be built up in unity and to make much of you and to glorify you. Lord, help us to repent from the ways that we have not loved the church well, from the ways that we so naturally think about ourselves and focus on ourselves, and help us to love one another, to lay down our lives for the good of one another, to love one another, and that may mean sharing hard things, exhorting one another towards Christ. Lord, help us to do that with patience, with kindness, with gentleness. Lord, help us to love each other. And Lord, I do pray that you would draw those who are far from you to yourself. And Lord, use the gathering of the saints. What is happening here is amazing. We are a part of a people. The most unique gathering of a people anywhere through all of time, through all of the world, is the church gathered together to worship the Lord Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago lived a perfect life, gave his life, was crucified on the cross for our sins, was buried,
but death could not hold him. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus was raised and Jesus now rules and reigns, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, help us to worship you in your tri-unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you and we love you. Amen.